Uh, Well, if you've been with us at all over the past few weeks, you'll know that we just finished a sermon series on the Ten Commandments, and we decided this morning that instead of starting our next sermon series, which is going to be on the book of Mark on Labor Day weekend, a weekend where so many people travel, um, that we were going to wait and start that next week, and we would have a standalone sermon this week, which I enjoy, but at the same time, it can be a little bit stressful because I have a lot of freedom to do whatever I want, but there are a ton of options if you think about it. I mean, there's 66 books in the Old and New Testament, and there are over 31,000 verses throughout the whole Bible, and so that's a lot of content. And so how do you just pick one thing? Well, in thinking about it and praying about it throughout the week, God brought to mind fairly quickly what I would like to preach on, and one reason is because this passage we're going to look at is one of my favorite passages of Scripture in the entire Bible. A second reason is is that I've never preached on this passage here at Hope before, and so I'm excited to do so. A third reason is that our guest preacher, Clyde Godwin, touched on this topic last week, and so it's a natural transition to this passage. But lastly, and most selfishly, I need a reminder. Now, I know many of you know that over the summer, Kelly and I both spent time out in Colorado. Uh, I was there in August for a two-week counseling intensive, and this is a theme that came up over and over again in my two weeks there. Where I find my identity and how I usually gauge it according to the current circumstance that I'm in. What I mean is if I have a good week at work, then I'm a good pastor. But if I have a bad week at work, I should probably find another job. I'm a good parent if my kids are well-behaved, but that's disregarding that they have their own sin and shortcomings. I feel that I'm a good friend if my friends call me and want to spend time with me. Or I'm a good man if Kelly tells me enough. But that's not how Christianity works. And we're told this in the gospel, that we are not to ground our identities and our circumstances, but in something much greater and most profound. It's something that we've been singing about this morning. It was our call to worship. I was listening to a podcast early this week, and the facilitator quoted Henry Nouwen in his book, Home Tonight. And this is the quote that he read. He said, we are not what we do. We are not what we have. We are not what others think of us. Coming home is claiming the truth that I am the beloved child of a loving creator. And when I heard that, I knew what I wanted to preach on. Our identities of children of a loving creator. We're going to look at our adoption and our sonship, which J.I. Packer in his book, Knowing God, he said it's the most important thing to actually understanding what Christianity is all about. And the passage that we're going to look at again this, or again this, uh, this morning, again, one of my favorites, is from Galatians 3 and 4. I'm only going to read the verses from chapter 4, but we're going to jump back into chapter 3 from time to time. But let's start in verse 1 of chapter 4. I mean that an heir, as long as he is a child is no different from a slave, even though he is the owner of everything. But he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons." And because you are sons, God has sent his spirit into, of his Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. 
So for some context of what's going on in the book of Galatians, this is a young Gentile church, and a group has infiltrated the church called the Judaizers, and they say, we've brought a message from Jerusalem that faith in Christ is not enough to put you in right standing before God. But you Gentiles need to start living like us Jews. You need to obey our ceremonial rites, you need to eat kosher, and you need to circumcise all the males. And so Paul writes this letter to this church, and he says, no, that is a complete lie. You have 100% been deceived, and you have lost the truth of the gospel, because the gospel is Jesus plus nothing else. You don't do things to earn his love. You obey the law of God because you already have his love. And this is the thing that separates Christianity from every other world religion. And this is completely countercultural, if you think about it. And the reason it's so countercultural because this is the world we live in. Think about capitalism. You largely are what you make of yourself. You become successful through hard work, determination, and achievement. You work hard to make money and to please your boss. Imagine if on Tuesday you go back to work and your, your boss walks in and says, hey, you don't have to worry about money anymore. Job reviews are going away. Your standing is 100% secure, so now just go do your job and have fun doing it. Or what if you're a student and in the beginning of the semester your teacher or professor says, hey, your final grade is a 100 for this class. I have already determined it. So let's go learn and let's have fun doing so. That makes no sense to us. And that is why when we consider the claim of Christianity, it's, of Christianity, it's really hard to get our minds around it. Because what Paul is saying is this is what takes place in the reality of the gospel, that we are justified before God because of what he has done before we have done anything at all. It's not by what we do or don't do. But he tells this young church and consequently us something else, and it's something that is so beautiful. And J.I. Packer points out that it's the highest privilege of the Christian gospel. It's something so crucial to really understanding what Christianity is all about. And as Eric really pointed out in the call to worship, it's something that you can just kind of breeze past and not even think about the significance of what's going on here. But listen again to verses 4 and 5. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. Adoption, sonship, this is something that is completely unique to Christianity. In Islam, God isn't your father. He's Allah, who brings earthly blessings in this world and eternal punishment in the next. In Islam, you can't know God like a child knows its parent. In Buddhism, the relationship between God and follower is that of a teacher and a student. In Hinduism, you can have one God or multiple gods or no gods. It's completely up to you. It's only in Christianity that you will find that you are actually able to have a relationship with God of a father, not one that isn't a slave master, a parent teacher, or a buddy buddy. But it is one of a father and his precious child. And so let's jump into this amazing passage and see what Paul tells us about the heart of the gospel. 
So specifically, because I love me an outline, we're going to look at three things. We're going to look at the life of a slave, the work of the father, and the experience of a son. And we're going to bounce around the passage a little bit, but let's jump into our first point. And we see this in chapter 4, verses 1 through 3. Let's read them again. I mean that an heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything, but he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. Paul says we were slaves, and this is not new to Paul. In Romans 6, he talks about at one point we were slaves to sin. Jesus himself in John 8 says that everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin, but Paul is talking about something different here. This is completely different, and it's something that is far more deceptive. Paul tells the Galatian church, and we aren't off the hook here, that they are enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. Well, what is that? What does that even mean? Well, he tells us in Colossians 2, and these elementary principles or basic principles can come in different forms, but they share certain traits. They have some commonality. Listen to what Paul says in Colossians. He says, if with Christ you died to the elemental spirits, that's what he's talking about, of the world, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, referring to things that all perish as they are used. According to the human precepts and teachings, these have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. So these elementary principles of the world are a set of rules or religious routines that we follow to appear wise or falsely humble or moral. But the thing is, they don't have any power. They may change our outward appearance, but they can't change our inward condition. In other words, what are the rules that we put in place that we think if we obey them, we are doing well in life or doing well spiritually? And if we don't do them, we feel like we are failures. But at the same time, what are the things that you do that you feel set you apart as a Christian, that you think you do better than anyone else? What are the things you think that people need to get their acts together on? Do you feel that people need to grow more in their spiritual maturity? Do you feel that others should maybe read their Bible like you read your Bible? Do people need to put more encouraging posts on social media like you do? Do they need to manage their finances better? Do they need to be more disciplined in their screen time or get over their legalism? Whatever it is that you find as your, a source of your identity, security, or comfort, that is your functional God, and you will quickly become enslaved to it. Because let me ask you this, how much is ever really enough? Because you can always read your Bible more. Again, 31,000 verses. You can always pray more. You can always share your faith more. You can always be more patient. And think about it this way, if you're always constantly comparing yourselves to others, then how can you truly enjoy that person? That feels so enslaving. And that's the very thing that Paul is talking about here. For the Galatian church, they were told that they have to do more. They have to eat a certain way. They have to observe certain rites and rituals, circumcisions, 
They were told you have to do these things to actually earn the love of God. What's it for you? And this is a super important question to ask yourself because as Paul points out, we will become enslaved to it. And so if our outward obedience can't really do anything to change our hearts, to change our inward sinful condition, what do we do about it? Well, as Paul tells the Galatians, you never look to what you can or can't do. You have to look at what's been done. And he's not talking about something that you have done. And this brings us to our second point, and this is the work of the Father. And we see this in verses 4 through 7. Let's read what Paul says. And I love these verses. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father, so you are no longer a slave, but a son, and if a son, then an heir through God. I think these are some of the most beautiful four verses in all the Bible. There is so much going on here. It is a beautiful picture of our redemption and a beautiful picture of the hope that we can find in the gospel. Paul touches on two deep theological truths that are really important for us to understand and really get the concept of our relationship with God. And they're the very two things that we recited earlier that Lisa led us through in the Catechism, questions 33 and 34, justification and adoption. As we recited earlier, that justification is this gracious act by God by which He declares a sinner righteous through faith in Jesus Christ. And we see it right here in verse 4. In the fullness of time, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem, that's it, those who were under the law. By grace, through faith in Christ, we are right before God the Judge. As we just sang, because the sinless Savior died, my sinful soul is counted free For God the just is satisfied to look on Him, to look on Christ and pardon me. Our righteousness doesn't have to be earned because Jesus earned it for us. Jesus is our righteousness. As we sang earlier, it's 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 in Him that His righteousness is imputed to us. Our righteousness is in heaven and our standing before God is not based on the righteousness that we try to produce, these elementary principles. But it's solely based on the righteousness of the one who sits at the right hand of the Father. That's justification and this can't be emphasized enough, but we need to recognize that the gospel doesn't stop there. The doctrine of justification tells us that we are right before God the Father, that we are just before Him, but the the doctrine of adoption tells us that we are loved by the Father. In justification, the picture is legal. We stand before a judge who makes a pronouncement. But in adoption, it's relational. Not only does the judge declare you not guilty, but he gets up from the bench, he comes down to where you are, he takes off your chains, he cups your, your face in his hands, and he says, I'm not going to ask you any questions. Whatever you have done, wherever you have gone, and whatever people say about you, you are my beloved child. I hold you safe in my embrace. I hug you. I gather you under my wings. You can come home to me. And this is super important to note here because in verse 26, he says that you are all sons of God. And again, in verses 5 through 7, he says sons. 
Now, elsewhere in Scripture, God refers to his people as sons or daughters or children. But Paul is saying sons over and over again. It seems like he's almost going out of his way to be a male chauvinist here. But look at verses 1 through 5. There he mentions children. And so what he's actually doing here is he's contrasting the difference in being sons and being children. Because see, in this, first, in this culture, in this Galatian culture, the firstborn male was entitled to the lion's share of the inheritance of the estate. But he would actually be treated like a slave, as Paul alludes to in verse 1. And at a certain age, the status of the boy would change, and he would take on all the responsibilities of manhood. He would officially pass from being a child who is told what to do and where to go by guardians and managers, someone treated like a servant, his status would change to that of a son. And Paul is saying here to the Galatians and to us that the same thing happens to us. That there's a status change, but not just for sons, but for daughters as well. And he is saying something completely radical at the time. Because according to verse 28 in chapter 3, Paul is saying that the full rights of sons, the full inheritance are granted to everyone who belongs to Jesus regardless of of whether or not they are male or female, slave or free, Greek or Jew, he says it doesn't matter who you are. The inheritance of God the Father is fully yours. It's available to everyone. Now, given that we're considering our adoption by our Heavenly Father, I want us to consider some practical matters about it. Now, I haven't adopted a child personally, but there are certain things that need to be true in order for a family to go through a contemporary adoption, and we're going to see in these verses that the same is true for us spiritually. And this is what actually makes our spiritual adoption and sonship possible. So one thing is that adoption requires someone to come at the right time. We know that in our contemporary context to go through an adoption, you have to fill out paperwork, you have to do a home study, you have to wait and wait and wait for when the time is right. And in verse 4, we're told the same thing is true about our adoption. Paul says, when the fullness of time had come. The timing of God coming to earth was intentional in every way. It was right theologically. The promises had been made to Abraham. The law was given to Moses. For years it had done his work, its work to drive people toward the coming Messiah, towards grace. Over 300 prophecies had been made about the coming Christ. They were ready theologically. The, right, the time was right religiously as well. Paganism in Rome. Idol worship in the Greek culture. Pagan worship had become the prevailing worship at the time. And God had been completely silent for 400 years. His people were longing for His arrival. They needed to hear from their God. It was the right time culturally. The Greek language had become common and almost universal. And so many of the language barriers that happened all the way back at the Tower of Babel began to disappear. And it was the right time politically. Rome had conquered and subdued the surrounding nations, and things were thriving under the peace of Rome. Rome had built roads as a result, and travel and commerce were flourishing. It was so much easier to take the good news of the gospel to parts of the world that were never accessible to this point. God sent His Son in His perfect timing when the fullness of time had come. 
But not only does adoption require someone to show up at the right time, it also requires someone to have the right qualifications. When you go through the adoption process here, certain things have to be true of you for you to bring a child into your home. A background check, a financial screen, the condition of the home that the baby would come into. And the same was true of Jesus. Our passage said that God sent His Son. That means that Jesus was fully divine. Colossians 1 says that He is the image of the invisible God. Only the infinite Son of God could bear the infinite wrath of God the Father. But it also says that he was born to a woman. And you're like, of course he was born to a woman. He was a human. But this is super significant because it means that he was fully human. He had to grow up a, norm, a normal birth. He was born in a dingy man, ma- manger. He grew up poor. He often lived as a refugee. And at times he was even homeless. He was completely human in every way. In every way. He laughed and he cried. But we also see that he was fully righteous. He was born under the law. Jesus was not simply born a man, but a Jewish man who grew up in a Jewish home, worshiping in the Jewish synagogue. And he perfectly fulfilled the demands of the law, keeping it perfectly in his 33 years. Only the completely righteous can redeem the unrighteous. And Jesus was righteous in every way. And finally... For someone to adopt, they have to have resolved. You don't adopt accidentally. It doesn't just happen. You are completely purposeful in your adoption. And in verse 5, we see what Jesus' purpose was to redeem those who are under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. Just as a parent takes the initiative to seek out an adoptive child, so did God. Ephesians 1 tells us that He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world according to His favor and will. Okay, so as we've seen, and that's a little bit like drinking from a fire hose, there are a lot of similarities between, between a contemporary adoption and our spiritual adoption, but there is one huge difference. Because when we think about earthly adoptions, we think about all these sweet little babies that are all over the world waiting to be adopted. But listen to what Paul tells us in Ephesians 2 about the people that God chose to adopt. This is what we read. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you once walked following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all at once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. That doesn't sound like a sweet little baby. Russell Moore, in his book Adopted for Life, wrote on this very thing, and this is the analogy that he makes as it relates to the contemporary picture of adoption. This is what he writes. I I didn't put up a quote, but I'm just going to read it to you. He said, Imagine for a moment you're adopting a child. As you meet the social worker in the last stage of the process, you're told that this 12-year-old has been in and out of psychotherapy since he was three. He persists in burning things and attempting to repeatedly skin animals alive. He acts out sexually, the social worker says, but she doesn't really fill you in on what that means. She continues with a little family history. The boy's father, grandfather, and great-grandfather, and great-great-grandfather all had histories of violence ranging from spousal abuse to serial murder, and each of them ended their own lives. 
Think for a minute. Would you want this child? If you did adopt him, wouldn't you watch him nervously as he played with your other children? Would you watch him nervously as he looks at the knife on the kitchen table? Would you leave the room as he watched a movie on TV with your daughter with the lights out? And then Moore identifies this problematic 12-year-old. He writes, he's you. He's me. This is what the gospel is telling us. Do you get that? Do you believe that to be true? If you think I'm exaggerating, look at the cross. Look at the picture of God's wrath against sin. It was no minor offense for which Jesus died. He was determined to redeem us. He died to do it. He loved to do it. It was the joy that was set before him, the author of Hebrews tells us. And I'm so thankful for his resolve. And you know, amazingly, it doesn't stop there. And it feels so weird to say that. Because Jesus didn't just justify us, and he doesn't merely give us a new position or status in his family, but he sends his spirit of his son to our heart so that we can actually experience here and now the privilege of our sonship. And this brings us to our last point, the experience of a son. If you are in a relationship with Jesus, if you look to Him and His perfect righteousness as your own, if you are indeed adopted by God because in the fullness of time, God sent His Son to redeem you, you have more than simply a change in status. You have a new life. And you have a relationship with your Father. A living and real relationship. One that comes with love and affection and strength. Jesus actually changes who we are. Let's read verses 25 to 29 from chapter 3. For in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you were baptized into Christ, have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. So as we wrap up this morning, I want us to notice what our experience as sons and daughters of the Most High God looks like. One thing we can know, <clears throat> excuse me, as His children, that we are set apart, and we talk about this a lot when we do baptisms at Hope, how God's people are set apart, that how Abraham's children were giving circum given circumcision based on his faith, and they were set apart because God's people were given the law. They were set apart and looked different than the rest of the world. And this is what Paul is talking about taking place here. He says to the Galatians, he's telling them that as many were baptized, he's reminding them that they were set apart for God himself. Again, just as the faith of Abraham put his children in a special position, Paul is saying to the church, the same is true of you, that your baptism is evidence of God's adoption in your life. Okay, well, set apart. What does that mean? How are we set apart? And Paul goes on to tell us this. He says the very next thing, you have put on Christ. Now, this sounds super confusing, but Paul uses this metaphor all the time. He often equates faith to putting on clothes, and here's the reason why. Because your clothes are the most intimate thing that you own. They identify you to others. They protect you. They comfort you. They rest against your skin, and they cover your shame. They cover your shame. And what Paul is saying here is that if you have been set apart, 
If you have put on Christ, then your shame is gone. You have no shame. He has taken it away no matter what you've done. In the Garden of Eden, immediately after bringing sin into the hearts of humanity, Adam and Eve hid out of their shame because of their nakedness. When God came into the garden and called out to them, where are you? Adam responded, I was ashamed because I was naked, and so I hid. And right before they left the garden, God made Adam and Eve garments to cover their shame, but they were temporary. If you are in a relationship with Jesus Christ, He covers your shame permanently. He covers your nakedness. And so you can come out of hiding. You don't have to hide anymore. There is nothing about you that He can't handle. He says, give me the thing that you are most ashamed of and I will cover that for you. He says, you won't be defined by what you've done, no matter how terrible it is. He says, you will be defined by what I have done by my death, which I gladly died for you. And when we do this, when we hear this, And when we turn our hearts and mind toward Jesus and allow Him to tell us who we are, to bear our burdens and cover our shame, we begin to experiencing the transforming love of God the Father in such a way that Jesus literally becomes our identity. It's the relationship with Him that is the most important thing about us, more so than our culture, our political affiliation, or our sexuality. Again, in verse 28, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And so practically what that means, if you have been adopted by Christ, you have a lot of siblings. You've got a lot of brothers and sisters, and they may look different than you, They may vote different than you. They may act different than you. They may think differently than you. But whereas once you couldn't even be in the same room with that person, because you are united with Christ, you begin inviting them into your home and into your lives, your fellow sons and daughter. Theologian D.A. Carson once said, and this is one of my favorites, he said, the gospel is the only thing that can take natural enemies and make them friends. Only the gospel can do that. As we close, I want us to realize one other way that we get to experience our sonship, and this is so beautiful. Because if you are a son or daughter of God, that means that you have got the ear of God in a way that many people do not. Again, look at verse 6. Paul says, And because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So it's easy to miss what is so amazing and so significant here. The Greek word that is always used for father is pater, and he uses it here. Where Paul says father, that is pater. But that word Abba, do you know what that translates as? It is something so much more tender. Um, Some some other translations uh, translate it as dear father, but commentators agree that translating it that way does not catch the tenderness and the intimacy of what God is saying here. A better translation would be daddy. Do you realize how amazing that is? God of the universe to call him daddy? In the Old Testament, because of God's total otherness, his wisdom, his transcendence, his omnipresence, and his holiness, he was completely unapproachable. Remember what he said to Abraham? He said, I can't let you see my face, but because if you do, you will die. But we can stare into the face of Jesus, and because of that, we can call our Father Abba. 
But the Judaizers were still living the way that people in the Old Testament lived. They were trying to earn the approval of God. But as Paul reminds the Galatians, not only do you have the approval of God, but because of not only your justification, because of your adoption, you have more than that. You have God's approval, but more importantly, you have his heart. You have a doting daddy. I want to wrap up and just read one quote from one of my favorite books. This is from The Furious Longing of God. The author is Brennan Manning. And this is what he wrote. American child psychologists tell us that the average American baby begins to speak between the ages of 14 and 18 months. Regardless of the sex of the child, the first word normally spoken at that age is da, 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 daddy. A little Jewish child speaking Aramaic in the first century Palestine at the same age level would begin to say Abba, Ab, Abba. Jesus' revelation was nothing less than a revolution. From that moment on, no Christian can ever say one form of prayer is as good as another or one religion is as good as another. Jesus is saying that through him, we may address the infinite, transcendent, almighty God with the intimacy, familiarity, and unshaken trust that a 16-month-old baby has sitting on his father's lap. What a gift. Let me pray for us. Abba, Father, the greatest privilege in all of life and in all of the gospel is that we can call you daddy, and you call us son, you call us daughter. Thank you for bringing us into your family. Thank you for the siblings that we have through faith in you, Lord. I pray that we um, would love each other in a way that reflects the way that you have loved us a love of pursuit, a love of uh, forgiveness. I pray that we would come out of our hiding and be honest with you and be honest with others because our identity is not what we do or what we've done, but it's in what you did to redeem us, to adopt us, and to send your spirit of sonship into our heart, Father. Thank you for that gift. In your name I pray, amen.